All right. Good morning, gang. How we doing? Good, good. So uh, uh, kids, elementary kids, uh, preschool through fifth grade, you're headed out with teacher Jeff, it looks like, and uh, youth group, so middle and senior high, what are they doing today? Don Jay, Chris, are they going with you? You guys are going with Don Jay, so bless his heart. All right, everybody else, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 uh, this morning. We are uh, in the home stretch kind of of the book of Mark, but don't worry, we're not going to do the crucifixion on Christmas morning. We'll, uh, we'll wait for after the first of the year till we get to that and finish this book off. But for this morning, one of my favorite passages in, uh, in all of the Bible, Mark chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, we have them that you can use, and uh, we always encourage you to have one that you can follow along with. So just raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can keep this one as a gift from the Lord. Um, if you want to use the Bible on your phone, that's fine too. Any Bible is a good Bible. I want to jump right in and get to it. We'll talk next week about the reading plans and stuff like that that Don Jay mentioned, but uh, lots of great stuff to cover this morning, so we want to jump right in. So let's um, pray and just ask that the Lord would bless uh, this time. So Father, we do thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the opportunity, Lord, really the privilege that we have to be able to study it freely, Lord, to, um, to sit at your feet, Lord, as you reveal your heart to us. And we pray, Lord, for that teaching ministry of your spirit to be manifest here today. Lord, give us open ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord. And we ask for that um, personally, Lord, individually, Lord, we ask for it as well collectively, Lord, and corporately as your body. And so we thank you, Lord. We look forward expectantly to what it is you want to share with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, we're moving on this morning right into chapter 14 now of Mark's account of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Uh, at this point, of course, the cross is just days away. And we looked together last week at those very final verses of the Olivet Discourse. And we saw Jesus, of course, uh, answering for his disciples and answering sort of that question for us is what in the world do we do now, right? Or how do we live in light of this panorama of Bible prophecy that Jesus just laid out before us. And we saw, uh, again, a wonderful passage, a very uplifting section of scripture, really just encouraging us uh, to be ready and to live faithfully as we wait for the return of Jesus for his church. Now this morning, as we move on to, again, what I think is just another wonderful passage, one of my favorite uh, episodes, I think, in the life of Jesus. Um, and I will say this, though, is that while it is a wonderful passage scripturally, I think it's also a kind of a challenging passage personally. And the reason I say that is because it's not popular and it doesn't usually preach very well when we are reminded that our relationship with Jesus will cost each one of us something. And yet it's true. It's a reality. And we've talked before, remember that episode in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, remember the story of David. And he had committed that sin kind of being too self-reliant and he numbered the people and we saw that the Lord's hand come, comes heavy upon him. And so David goes to set up an altar to make sacrifice to the Lord. And you remember he, founds, he finds this spot and the owner of it offered to give it to David for free. And the owner was actually going to provide all of the wood to burn. He was going to provide the oxen to sacrifice. And yet David insisted on paying the man for everything. And David's reasoning was, he says, I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. And the principle, of course, is that our worship of and our devotion to the Lord will always inevitably cost us something. And so this is kind of a searching question in our text today that kind of asks, you know, really what is Jesus worth to each one of us? 
And I think that we'll be able, as we allow the Spirit, just to search our hearts as kind of we are able to answer that question. We're going to look at three very different responses to Jesus, right? So let's jump in. We're going to join Jesus and the boys. We've just finished up that long Tuesday of the Passion Week. And the very next thing we read in Mark's account in verse 1 of chapter 14, he says that after two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, I hate to do it, but we have to pause, unfortunately, just for, just for a moment kind of uh, to clear up a, a technicality, right, uh, based on the, the chronology here, because I'm afraid that this translation just sort of muddies the waters. Because the actual idea in the original language is more so that the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. Or some of your translations may say that after two days, it would be the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. So the, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread both commemorate the, the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. And that year, according to historical records, and Josephus records this for us, it would be on that Friday, which would be Nisan 15 of that year. So the after two days, in the way that the kind of the inclusive way that the Jews reckoned time would mean after Wednesday and after Thursday, which would place these events here in our text very likely on what we would call Tuesday evening, but the Jews would call what? Wednesday, because remember their day started at sunset and continued through the night and all the way through the next day. So we're probably talking about Tuesday evening here. So remember where we've just been in the bulk of all of Matthew 13, it's that long Tuesday, right? We've watched Jesus all day long battling these religious leaders in the temple courts. He then leaves the temple and he paused there and he taught the disciples up there atop the Mount of Olives through the Olivet Discourse. Very likely, as the sun was starting to set, which brings us into the next day, which brings us to this point, where now we read, again, after two days, or in two days, it would be the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. So here are these men, right, so badly beaten, all day during the day on Tuesday in the temple courts, right? Remember how Jesus easily, not only did he avoid, but he very insightfully answered all of their divisive kind of loaded questions that they were asking. And he exposed these men and their motives before the people. And then you remember he rebuked these men in front of the people. And then he finished as he left the temple with a very strong warning against these men to the people. And so now at this point, this long controversy between Jesus and these religious leaders has finally come down to this. They just need to get rid of Jesus. And notice that this group, as they assembled, Mark tells us very clearly, they knew they couldn't take him on the basis of anything sinful that he'd done. They couldn't find anything blasphemous that he had said. Remember, we sort of compared it to just like the Passover lamb. They had fully examined him. They have found no fault in him. And so they knew that they had to resort to trickery. So here they are hiding away, colluding, out over on the west side of Jerusalem, at Matthew tells us, in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. Now this guy is a gem. We don't have time to talk too much about him this morning. But simply to say that this reminds us that this was a plot which ran right up to the absolute highest levels of the Jewish leadership. I mean, this whole thing is just awful. You know, if this had been some sort of a rogue gang in Jerusalem, it would be one thing. That would be bad enough. 
but to have the highest religious officials in all of professing Judaism at the time, really within the whole land, they are contemplating and planning that Jesus would be beaten, that he would be crucified at their hands. And of course, it what makes what they're doing unspeakably awful. These very same men who should have been the first to recognize and enthrone him Instead, they're forming kind of the core of his enemies, really in an effort just to protect their power and their positions. They just wanted Jesus dead. Because every time he opened his mouth, every time he taught, every time he did a miracle, every time really Jesus did anything, though these men claimed to represent God, through his life and through his teaching, through everything that Jesus was all about, it was so different than what they were all about that everything he did just exposed them for the unspiritual men that they actually were. And so you see that their solution to that, instead of just repenting and becoming like Jesus, their solution was just to get him out of the way by putting him to death. And of course, it, it reminds us just of that terrible capacity of the human heart to harden itself to the point where we don't want to accept truth, but instead, all we want to do is silence it. We want to push the truth out of the way to continue doing what we want to do. So here we have these religious leaders, our first group. They are just looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. They knew he had to go, but these guys have a big problem. And the big problem they have, of course, is that as we've seen, Jesus at this point is so wildly popular amongst the common people. So while they're actually seeking his death, there was one thing that they absolutely do not want to have happen. And we see that in verse 2, where it says, But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So they didn't want to put Jesus to death during the Passover. So their thinking was to wait until these millions of Passover pilgrims who had converged for this annual feast in Jerusalem, they, were just going to, they wanted to wait until those people all went home. Then they could dispose of Jesus in a much more quiet way. Of course, the last thing they wanted is for all of these Passover pilgrims to find out that they were the ones behind Jesus being executed, and it would cause this incredible uproar. It would cause a riot within the city. They'd be in trouble as the Romans came to enforce peace. So they very cunningly needed to wait until all those people had left. And yet what we know is that things didn't go according to their plan at all. Things were going to go according to God's plan. Because these men were not in control of the life of Jesus. They were not in control of this situation. God is the one in control of all of this. Their plans are not going to work out exactly the way they want them to. And in fact, they are actually, the things are going to work out exactly the way that they did not want them to. And Matthew's account really kind of brings out this irony because they're saying here that he needs to die, but not until after the Passover. And yet Matthew tells us that Jesus has just said to his disciples that I must die on the Passover. In Matthew 26, in the first couple verses, this very same account, Matthew records that it came to pass that when Jesus had finished all these sayings, so as soon as he had finished the Olivet Discourse, that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And of course, that is precisely how it happened. Jesus was crucified on the very day of the Passover. And the timing of these conniving and corrupt Jewish religious leaders, it was not God's timing at all. And again, it's a beautiful reminder for us that Jesus is the one who's fully in, uh, in control of all of these events that are going to happen during the Passion Week. It's not these religious leaders. None of this is a surprise to God. The, in fact, they were going to kill him on the very day they didn't want him to die because he needed to die that day in perfect fulfillment of the scriptures. Remember, the Feast of Passover for the Jews 
is a feast that celebrates redemption. They were celebrating God's redemption of them from the physical bondage of over 400 years, right? The bondage that they were in under the Egyptians. So it's a celebration of that deliverance of them from that physical bondage. And Jesus is going to die on the cross, on the Passover, despite the best efforts of these men to avoid it, because Jesus has come now to fulfill all of that imagery, all of those types, all of those shadows from the Old Testament, including fulfillment of all of those feasts and those sacrifices. Remember John the Baptist said that Jesus is what? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. And so he would die on the very day of the Passover in perfect fulfillment of these feasts. Because what Jesus is about to do is he's about to introduce into the world through his death and through his sacrifice an even greater redemption than the redemption of the children of Israel out of Egypt. right? Because he is bringing into human history the redemption of man from a far greater bondage, from the bondage of sin. Through his death, he's going to provide a way for mankind to be saved and to be freed from that bondage. And so here are these guys, right? The irony is so thick. Here are these guys, they think they're in control. They think they're the ones doing all this planning. They think they're the ones who have all the power and whatever all the people think. And yet Jesus is going to end up being crucified on the very day they don't want him to be crucified. Which, of course, Peter would say to them later... At Pentecost, Peter preaches to these very same guys, and he says that this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and his foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter reminds these guys that all of human history was moving steadily toward this very moment and that God was in control of the whole thing the whole time. And of course, we spend time talking about this every time it comes up. It speaks to us, it runs all the way through the Bible, that God is the one in control, not just of human history, but also of our own lives. We're still responsible for our decisions and for our actions, But in a way that we don't fully understand, God uses even the free will of men to accomplish his purposes. I love the expression, it's sometimes well said, that God rules over all and he overrules over all for his purposes. He's not responsible for our bad decisions and yet he's still very much in charge of the outcome. And I think that we're going to see, and what I love, as we move closer and closer to the cross, and as we note, it was here, you know, it was Jesus who was the one setting the time for his execution. He's the one in command. He's the king. And as we see from a, from a human perspective, there are times when he's going to seem helpless and he's going to seem weak. And yet at those times, he is still in charge. In fact, I would say to you that the closer that Jesus gets to the cross, the more kingly he really becomes. And that's something I think we see next in this next beautiful picture of him because in stark contrast now to these religious leaders that are hiding in the shadows over there at the home of the high priest Caiaphas they're plotting to kill Jesus now Mark moves from that dark scene now he moves into this different scene of beautiful light where we find this group of believers that are honoring Jesus Mark moves fast the way, remember we've said he kind of takes these snapshots. And I think that Mark's snapshots are almost like a Polaroid picture, right? Where the camera spits out that piece of film and you can just sit there and just watch it kind of develop before your eyes. And I think Mark does that for us here. He moves now to this next scene. We've left these colluding Jewish religious leaders. And now all of a sudden it says in verse 3, and being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. 
Remember, Bethany was the place of love. Jerusalem is the place of hate. Bethany, right, just over the hill on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And we've noted that Jesus never stayed in Jerusalem. But during his visits there, and especially now during this final week before the cross, he spent every night in Bethany, east of Jerusalem, right? Just on the eastern slopes of the, of the Mount of Olives. And now during his very last hours before his death, here is Jesus spending time with those who loved him. And I think it just, it's an important reminder of, of that great value and the great importance just on friendship and on fellowship and on the close companionship that we all need in our lives. Here Jesus, right, facing the reality of the cross, right, enduring undoubtedly the hardest week in any life of any human being throughout history. And each night he goes to Bethany because he has friends there. And this night, we see he's at the home of a man simply named Simon the leper. Now, we don't know too much more about this man, but we can only assume that he wasn't a leper any longer, right? Because it was probably a bad idea to go dine in the home of someone who had perhaps the most deadly and communicable disease ever known to man and to have him over at the barbecue in charge of the burgers, right? Not a good idea. So more than likely, we can assume that there was a time when he was a leper, and yet Jesus undoubtedly had healed him from that, so that now he's able to sit there with Jesus and have fellowship with him. And just in and of itself, right, we could do a whole morning on Simon the leper because he becomes such a beautiful picture of each and every one of us who've also now been healed by Jesus from that disease and that sickness of our own sin. And now we're able to sit and enjoy that intimate and wonderful fellowship with him. Now, when we compare this account here of this dinner with the very same account in John chapter 12, we also see, John says, this happened in the home of the two sisters, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. So you put it all together, and it potentially it means that Simon possibly may have been, some suspect, he was their father. The father of these devoted friends of Jesus. And I think that's actually pretty probable, especially considering what we're about to see happen next. Because now we see that as they're gathered here at this dinner, right, being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, it says that as he, Jesus, sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now, in case you're wondering who this woman is, you don't have to wonder very long, because John tells us also in his account that this woman is Mary. Mary, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. The same Mary who we've seen sitting at the feet of Jesus now makes this extravagant display of love and of devotion to Jesus. And we're going to see just in a couple of verses that this oil that she poured out over Jesus' head would have been worth 300 denarii, right? Which would have been equal to about a year's wages of a working person. So we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars. Maybe as much as fifty to $75,000 is what this oil was worth. Spikenard was a very expensive and an aromatic oil that came from a, the, a very rare root of a plant that was native to India. So this was an extremely rare and extremely costly kind of treasure. Very possibly, some have suggested that this may have been Mary's dowry. This may have been this treasure that was set aside for her one day to present to her husband at the time of her marriage. And if indeed this was the case, here in pouring it out upon Jesus, what she's signifying is that she was ready to give up everything, even the potential of a marriage in the future. She was prepared to give that up in order to devote herself completely and devote herself so wholeheartedly 
to Jesus, right? Nothing was too much to express her heart to him. And she does it, you know, we get the sense from the text that she does this without the slightest hesitation. There's no, you know, hand-wringing about it. There's no hesitation around it. This is the only thing in her heart that could communicate this overwhelming greatness of the love that she had for him. And of course, it is one of the most beautiful and one of the most costly expressions of worship toward God in all the Bible. And that's why we love this passage. I love to just watch it kind of unfold in my mind. When you combine all of the different accounts, right? John's account, Matthew's account, and Mark's account, what we learn is that she anoints Jesus both on his head and also on his feet, and then she wipes his feet with her hair. Paul tells us that a woman's hair is her glory. And what a beautiful picture. Here's Mary surrendering her glory to the Lord, worshiping him with this precious gift she's brought as just this act of love and of devotion. Right? John also tells us that this scented oil, he says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So through what Mary did, she brought this beautiful fragrance of worship that filled the whole house because Mary herself was a worshiper, right? We see her three different times in the scriptures and each and every time we see her, where is she? She's at the feet of Jesus, right? In Luke chapter 10, he says that she was sitting at his feet, listening to the word. In John, right, we know John chapter 11, she came to his feet in sorrow after the death of her brother Lazarus. And then here we see that she's worshiping at his feet after she's anointed him with this precious perfume. And so her example is such a powerful one for all of us as believers. I love the way that one author described her. They wrote that she found at his feet her blessing she brought to his feet her burdens, and she gave at his feet her best. Right To Mary, there was nothing too precious for Jesus. She doesn't just dab some of this perfume like, you know, behind his ears. She breaks this whole flask. She pours out the oil on top of him over his head and over his feet. And of course, she speaks to us that we should be giving all that we have to bless Jesus. And you would think, right, again, as we kind of watch this scene unfold, you would think that watching this kind of a display of sincere, heartfelt worship, that it would have prompted the other disciples to really kind of check their hearts, right, and consider their own devotion to him and maybe be encouraged toward a more total commitment themselves to him, and yet that's not exactly the way they responded, right? You guys know this. Look at verse 4. It says, But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. Now, John's gospel tells us what you guys know, right? That the disciple that led this, who was most indignant, was Judas. He's the one that said, you know, this was a waste and you could have done something much more practical with this ointment. But again, John tells us why. It wasn't because Judas really cared. It was because he was a thief and he wanted that money for himself, Right? John says that this he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. Right, He was taking out, stealing from the treasury. And so none of us are surprised that any of this objection comes from Judas. It, of course, it reminds us that people that don't love God and people that don't know God will always see our worship of Jesus as a waste. Right, That's easy. But what I think is especially interesting and a little surprising and frankly sort of disheartening is that the rest of the disciples just joined right in and started attacking her as well. No doubt 
because Judas's criticism of Mary probably sounded super spiritual, right? Well, of course it would be better to help the poor than wasting our time and our money just in worship. So think about the scene. Here's Mary, right, just lost in this moment of worship when suddenly, right, it's not Zeus worshipers, it's not pagan idolaters, but it's other Christians who begin to complain about how extravagant and how wasteful, right? This is not one of the disciples' finest moments. They just completely misjudge her motives and they misunderstand her devotion. And in fact, if you look at Mary, one thing we notice about her is that every time this poor woman tries to do something for Jesus, she's misunderstood, right? She's misunderstood by Martha when she sits at Jesus' feet. Her friends and neighbors misunderstood her when she came out of the house and threw herself at the feet of Jesus. And here, of course, Judas and the other disciples are misunderstanding her as well. And I bring it up because it's important that we know that when we give Jesus Christ that first place of priority and devotion in our lives, we can expect that we are very possibly going to be misjudged and misunderstood and even criticized by those who also claim to follow him. But look what it says in verse 6. It says, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? Now, I bet things got awful quiet, awful quick in that room. Jesus says, let her alone. And in the original language, you know what Jesus says? He says, let her alone. Right? He says, back off, boys. Let it go. Drop it now. Can you imagine that coming from the mouth of Jesus to the big 12 here? Knock it off. It's sort of like the kind of thing that somebody would say to a bunch of bullies, right, on the, on the schoolyard. And I love the fact that Mary hardly needed to defend herself because of how quick Jesus is to come to her defense. Look at the rest of verse 6. He says, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do to them good. But me you do not have always. So what they called waste, Jesus called a good work. Or some of your texts might say a beautiful thing or a gracious act. Now, let me clear this up. We know that Jesus didn't say this to try to discourage any kind of generosity or kind treatment to the poor. Every sermon that Jesus ever taught had radically encouraged kindness to those who are in need, right? As a really an evidence of hearts and lives that have been touched and transformed by him. So Jesus wasn't in any way minimizing the importance of ministry to the poor. In fact, if you take any religious system, right? Take any religion that you can think of. Take any non-religious organization or system or charity in the history of the world, certainly within the last 2,000 years, and I would venture to guess that you could put all of them together, and all of them together would not even begin to approach what has been done for the poor on this planet in the name of Jesus and because of Jesus. Right? So there's no one there understood this to mean that Jesus was minimizing the importance of ministry to the poor. What he was simply declaring is that the poor are always going to be around. There are always going to be opportunities to do good in his name, but that he was not always going to be around. Mary would not always have this opportunity to pour out this oil upon him. So understand, this is not a Jesus versus the poor argument. This is an always versus a not always argument. So all Jesus was doing was defending Mary, and he was really pointing to the fact that this was especially appropriate timing in that moment to honor him in this extravagant way. So her act wasn't wasteful, it was beautiful. And not only was it beautiful, but it was perfectly 
timed. He goes on in verse 8, he says, She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you that wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Again, the poor can be helped anytime, but only one time in the history of the world could the Savior of the world be anointed for burial. And that moment was right now. And Mary saw it and she seized it. And in this entire scene, as the tension of this narrative increases and as the cross is approaching, this scene of worship just stands out. He has just reminded them that he's about to be delivered up and to be crucified in two days' time. And these guys suddenly are worried about somebody being too extravagant in their worship of him. The disciples clearly did not get it. There was one person in that whole house who did get it. One person who took seriously and who understood and decided, you know what, I have an opportunity right now to worship him in a way that I might never otherwise have, and she used it to worship him. And here's what I would suggest to you. I would suggest to you that she alone understood more than anyone else there because she was more consistently found in that place of greatest understanding because she was consistently at the feet of Jesus. And it's a, a simple lesson for each of us that adoration and revelation are intricately linked together. Right? So sitting there at Jesus' feet, right? she's listening to Jesus and she's perceiving Jesus and she is looking into the eyes of Jesus and she understood what no one else in the room did, and that's that Jesus was about to die. Now, I don't believe that she possibly could have known all of the ramifications of his death. She didn't understand the reasons for his death, and yet she loved Jesus and she trusted Jesus for what he was about to do. So she's anointing him for his grave. Already, she is grieving and she's mourning his death. I believe that she trusted that Jesus had to die, although she didn't understand maybe why he had to die. I think she had listened to him enough to understand that God, that Jesus was in complete control, even in the darkest moment. And it ministered to her heart in a unique way in the room that night. And the very same thing, you guys, is true in each of our lives. When you're at the feet of Jesus in worship, it is simply a spiritual reality that you will see things that other people don't. Because when we're consistently in that place, we start to see the reasons behind the things that are happening to us. We start to really appreciate the loving character of the Lord and we appreciate it in a way that strengthens, strengthens our face in those, those darkest moments in our lives. It's amazing what you will see when, like Mary, you take the time to sit at the feet of Jesus. And it's amazing too, again, not only is it incredibly edifying for us, but more importantly, it blesses because just try to put yourself in Jesus' sandals, right, shoes, right? Consider it from his perspective. No doubt this act of beauty would have stayed with him in a very profound way. Because do you realize that when Jesus, just days from now, when Jesus had those nails driven through his hands and driven through his feet, and when he was hung there on that cross, that this fragrance would have still been there on him. As a constant reminder of this beautiful expression of her love for him. And consider this, because this is key to the point of the passage, and really to the way that it applies to our lives, but that that beautiful fragrance that she poured out all over him, it would have also been all over her. 
right? Because remember we said in John's account of this event that he includes the fact that Mary used her own hair to wipe Jesus' feet of that oil after she poured it on his feet. It says that Mary took a pound of that very costly oil, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. She very purposely wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. It was not because there wasn't a towel available to her. Right? Any woman that is going to come and bring this oil that's worth tens of thousands of dollars to pour out and anoint Jesus, if she thought she would have needed a towel, she would have brought a towel. Right? This is a person who thinks things through, but she deliberately takes that fragrance of Jesus upon herself. And it's so very clear in what she does that she desires that she would share in that beautiful fragrance that came from him. And that that aroma would be left on her life as a result of this time that she spent at his feet worshiping. And that she would then carry that wonderful fragrance long after she had left that place. And of course the application is so plain to us but so very, very important for us. Because just as Mary took on the fragrance of spending time at the feet of Jesus worshiping him. The Bible teaches us that we as Christians, that we take on an unmistakable, undeniable, beautiful spiritual aroma upon our own lives as a result of us spending time at the feet of Jesus. Spending time, what, reading our Bibles in the morning and not reading them in some sort of an academic way or to check the box off of a reading plan. But reading the Bible really get to, to get to know the God of the Bible more richly. Reading the Bible in fellowship with him and in communion with him and in conversation with him. And then leading into a time of prayer where we're praying with God and we're talking over our day with him and we're talking about anything and everything in our lives and in the lives of the people that we love. We're sorting through our day, right? Laying out the, the things that are coming. Lord, here's what's coming at 10 and here's what's happening at noon and here's what's happening at three and then this, I got this thing at seven and Lord, what in the world am I supposed to do here and how do you want me to handle this situation over there? And Lord, how am I going to deal with this difficult person I have to see at one, right? All of those kinds of things where we're reading about him and we're praying to him and then we're just lifting up these praises of him and we're giving thanksgiving for him. Maybe even, you know, singing a worship song to him. And as we start the day like that, there is this spiritual scent, right? There's a spiritual something that's left upon our lives as a result. And it's this unmistakable aroma. It's an evidence that we started our day in that place. And the Apostle Paul speaks of it very specifically. He actually gave it a name. He calls it the fragrance of Christ. And he writes this to the Corinthians. He says that we are, to, we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And I just think it's wonderful and it's worth a moment just to realize that as we experience this fellowship with the Lord every day, hopefully beginning each and every day in the word and in prayer and in worship, that there is a very real and spiritual fragrance that will naturally, or really that will supernaturally, come upon our lives as a result. And that fragrance will be undeniable to every person that we run into for the rest of the day. Have you ever walked into the room where there is someone wearing a very beautiful fragrance and it is impossible on a physical level to ignore it, right? It's impossible not to recognize that fragrance that someone is wearing. Well, the very same thing is true spiritually of that spiritual fragrance that we wear as a result of time spent worshiping the Lord. It's impossible to ignore it. It's impossible for people not to notice it in the lives of those who choose 
to wear it daily. Now, don't raise your hands, please. But how many of you know from painful person ex personal experience that there really is a different fragrance or a different vibe that emanates off of our lives on those days when we don't begin the day with the Lord versus the days when we do, right? There are two entirely different aromas that can come from our life. And can I just tell you that people recognize it, especially the people that are closest to you and have to live with you, right? I would imagine there is not one of us in this room who would knowingly skip a day of putting on deodorant. Even those deodorants that say that they provide 48 hours or even 72 hours, how's that even possible, right? Even when it says that, what are we doing? Well, we are slathering that stuff on barely after 24 hours because we don't want to stink. And the truth is, you know, once you've walked with the Lord for a while, it becomes very, very easy to spot those people who have taken on the fragrance of Christ that morning to start the day versus those people that are working off of a three-day-old kind of a fragrance, right? Or maybe, those, maybe it's a month-old kind of a fragrance, right? Because the flesh begins to overwhelm the fragrance of Christ. And pretty soon, our fragrance just becomes... The fragrance we're giving off is a little too earthy, right? It's a little too fleshy, right? That judgmental spirit towards everyone we run into or that anger or an impatience with people or bitterness against people or pride, frustration, rebellion, jealousy about people. All of these things, right, they can start to emanate from the life of a child of God, but when they do, it's an indication we need to get where? We need to get back to the feet of Jesus, get back into that place of intimate fellowship and communion with him so that his fragrance will once again wash over our lives. That's the fragrance that we wear. And here's the truth. You can't spend time with him, truly worshiping him, and not have that fragrance come over you. And so this passage to me is one of the most beautiful pictures of the really powerful effect of our quiet time, right? Our devotional time and the impact that it has on our lives. Not only as it tremendously blesses us, but also the way that it's a wonderful blessing to those around us. It really impacts and blesses others in every environment that we enter into. It's so real and it's so true and it's so beautiful. And just as we said before, it blesses the heart of Jesus. Because again, think about this for a minute. Jesus sees in this whole house full of people. And all of these people love Jesus in their own way. But again, there's only one person who really gets it. One person who sees and understands and she anoints him and she worships him to bless him and it is an extraordinary act, which is why it's recorded in the scriptures. And here's my encouragement to you is that there's a very real sense of this very same extraordinary nature of our worship of the Lord even today. Do you realize that when we get to heaven, it's not going to be an extraordinary thing to worship Jesus? That's all heaven's going to be about. The whole environment of heaven is going to be worshiping Jesus. It's going to cost us nothing at that point to worship him. But now it does cost us something. And that makes the sacrifice that much more precious in his eyes. We have the opportunity now and only now to be able to bless Jesus in this way. Think about that. Think about our world and how anti-Jesus it is, right? This is still a massive scene of rejection of Jesus. They would crucify him again if he said and did the same things. People are just as hateful and just as fearful as they has, have ever been. And what that means is that our acts of worship to him now, our acts of worship through our singing or our devotions or our obedience or our giving Right? This is this very finite opportunity we have to extend to him worship right in the midst of this current 
environment of rejection, right? And it's something that truly blesses him and we're not always gonna have this opportunity. And when we do it, he sees, he knows, and heaven remembers, just as it does with Mary here, right? Not only heaven, but what does it say in verse 13? Jesus promises that wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Her worship was so extraordinary that it has been recorded for us eternally in the scriptures. And here we sit this morning fulfilling this very verse as we consider her and as we take in this important lesson from her life. And give me just another moment. I want to get real practical here just for a moment and just say this again that worshiping the Lord in this kind of a sacrificial way will cause people to criticize how we're spending our lives, why we're giving that kind of dedication to him and, and why that kind of worship for him. You know, they would look at it as a, a sure way to waste our lives. They say, you mean you go to church every Sunday, like four Sundays a month? What do you mean you go to a small group in the middle of the week? Or you mean there's midweek church on Wednesday also? What do you mean you're actually saving yourself for marriage? And you actually tell me you give a tenth of your income to the church? Right? Those are the kind of questions that we get. And again, that would be bad enough if that was just the prevailing attitude of the world. But you know what I'm going to say, Right? The same thing as the scene here, that vibe or that attitude or sometimes even the verbalizing of that very same thought can come from fellow Christians. Right? So often this is lost even on Christians in our culture and the sacrifice is lost and there's this lukewarmness that starts to come upon our lives. And of course we think about the church at Laodicea, right? the lukewarm church from Revelation chapter 3, the church of the last days, which is the days we're living in now. And did you know, many people think that the word Laodicea means lukewarm. It doesn't actually mean lukewarm. What Laodicea means, it means the people rule. And the idea is that this is the church when the church allows the culture to dictate and determine our devotion to Jesus. Once again, this passage truly tests our hearts, right? Ask yourself this hard question. Has there ever been a time in your walk with him when you loved him more? Or when you worshipped him more? Or when your worship was expressed in a more sacrificial way than it is right now? And if there is a time when those things were more true, understand you're being pulled into something that's very dangerous. And not just by the world outside, but even inside within the body of Christ. Right? He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all the worship that we can extend to him. And we need to fight that tone within professing or progressing Christianity. Right? We need to stay like Mary because there's no worship that we could direct toward Jesus that he's not worthy of. No worship of him is ever awake. And if we're moving away from this, then we're starting to drift into dangerous and lukewarm waters. So my encouragement today, don't settle down into some kind of low common denominator, culturally appropriate Christianity as the true expression of your love for Jesus, right? The example of Mary is this beautiful one that really challenges us. And encourages us so simply to value Jesus above everything else. And to just lavishly, extravagantly worship him above everything else. And I would love to leave off with that wonderful example. But we need to finish the passage and the passage isn't done. So we're not done. So look, because in the, just the next two more verses... Mark presents us with this startling contrast. He's going to return now to the narrative in this theme, not of the devotion to Jesus, but of the rejection of Jesus. He's going to go right back to where we started the chapter. And we've seen Mark do this before, where he kind of sandwiches 
one account in between two other kind of connected accounts. And Mark does it so often, Bible scholars even have a little name for this approach. They call it a Markin sandwich. You think I made that up? Google it, right? Here's what a Markin sandwich is, the insertion of one narrative episode between two parts of another one. And in this case, it's Mark's way of having this really cool thing surrounded by these two terrible things. Right? We started here with these religious leaders who are looking for a way to get rid of Jesus. Then we had Mary who wants to give all that she has to bless Jesus. And now in contrast to that scene of beauty and that scene of worship, now we're going to look at Judas who just wants to get what he can to sell out Jesus. It says in verse 10 that then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So the sense of the text here, right, is that this episode with Mary, this was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. Right? And after this, now he's just determined to actively betray Jesus. And boy, you can bet that these wicked religious leaders must have seen Judas as an answer to their sort of misguided prayers. Now, as you study Judas, some would suggest a number of reasons why Judas betrayed Jesus. Some of them even are puzzlingly noble. But according to the Bible, there was no noble intention at all in the heart of Judas. His motive was purely on some level. It was simply money. And his price wasn't even that high. Matthew says that this is what Judas says when he went to these men. He says in Matthew 26, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And it says that they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. You know how much 30 pieces of silver is worth? 15 to 25 bucks. Exodus 21 tells us that according to the Mosaic law, 30 pieces of silver was the price that you had to pay someone if your ox gored their slave to death. Right? If your ox killed somebody else's slave, you owed them 30 pieces of silver. That's the value that Judas put on Jesus. It was the known set price for a slave's burial. 30 pieces of silver after being with Jesus for three years. And notice specifically that the spirit through Mark describes Judas there in, in verse 10 as one of the 12. That is such a damning description. Think about it. Jesus, Judas had a privilege that only 12 people ever had in all of human history, right? Every miracle that Jesus did, Judas saw with his own eyes. Every teaching that Jesus taught, Judas heard with his own ears. Every single miracle, every single teaching, he saw it all, he heard it all. He had an access to Jesus that only 11 other people ever had. And so the inclusion of that detail just highlights the fact that this betrayal was an awful betrayal against privilege and against light for just 30 pieces of silver. And so it's put here, of course, in such striking contrast between Mary, who gives absolutely everything she has, lavishing this gift upon Jesus so extravagantly and valuing him so highly compared to Judas, greedy for gain, who sold Jesus so willingly and valued him so lightly. And the life of Jesus absolutely, or Judas, pardon me, speaks to us of so many things, but not the least of which it speaks, it's a warning to us about the sin of covetousness. Now, covetousness is simply the ungodly desire, right? It's a consuming, controlling desire to simply have more of anything. My precious, right? 
It's when my desire for whatever it is becomes more important to me than my relationship with God and I'm willing to sell God out to get it. And that can be when I'm willing to compromise the word of God or compromise my relationship with Jesus to get something, whether it's money or position or to be able to participate in some activity or to be involved in some sort of a relationship. And I'm willing to take my relationship with Jesus and sacrifice it in order to do that. Again, it's a very dangerous sin. It's a very searching section of scripture and we'll cut right to it. But the only way to be free of covetousness and of the danger of following in the footsteps of Judas is to determine to be a Christian who doesn't have a price. Right? We need to determine that we are the kind of Christians who simply don't have a price, where there is nothing that the world or the flesh or the devil could offer me to try to move me away from that place of obedience and devotion and faithfulness to God. There's nothing that anyone could ever offer me in terms of money or in terms of relationship or experience where I'd be willing to compromise my intimacy with the Lord. Not 30 pieces of silver, not 30 million pieces of silver. What would the actual price really matter in eternity? Doesn't matter how much it was. And did you realize really quickly, we're not gonna see it in Mark's account, Matthew tells us, you remember that when Judas sees that Jesus is condemned to die, Judas suddenly is overcome with remorse. And he runs back to these priests and he declares that Jesus is innocent and he throws the money back down at their feet. And the text specifically tells us that he throws all the money back down. He throws all 30 pieces, which means he never even spent one piece. He never got any bit of pleasure out of this thing that he sold the Lord out for. And that's always the truth concerning anyone's life ultimately and our lives as well. And as we close, just one final important thought, I think. I think that for Judas, as dangerous as the sin of covetousness is, and as dangerous as his desire to have more was, I think that there was something far more dangerous happening in Judas, which led him to sell Jesus out. Because I think that as we look at the life of Judas and we try to really get at the heart of the issue of his heart, that ultimately it may have been his disappointment with Jesus and his disillusionment about Jesus that prompted Judas to really entertain and then to nurture and to cultivate this whole betrayal mentality. Right, here's Judas starting to follow Jesus, so excited, I'm sure, about the prospect of this kingdom being set up here on earth. But then all of a sudden, Jesus starts leaving the area every time the multitude gathers, every time they try to make him king. Right, he starts warning people not to tell about his miracles. And you have to think that every time that happened, Jesus, I mean, Judas probably started to feel his heart sink a little bit more. All of a sudden, things aren't looking like they're going to work out for him the way that he thought that they would or the way that he believed that they should. And I mentioned this, and it's important because there can be a tendency amongst people today to sell out when they get disappointed in Jesus. Right? When we all of a sudden start to think, you know, I thought Jesus was, Jesus was going to bless my life financially or he was going to bless my life relationally or emotionally or whatever it was. I thought he was going to do all that if I became a Christian. I thought that that was the bargain. But what happened? I'm following after Jesus and I'm still broke and I'm still struggling and I'm alone and I'm depressed and I'm anxious and I'm discouraged. And if we're not careful, all of a sudden this Judas mentality can start to creep in and all of a sudden we will sell out. But when we start to hear the enemy whisper those lies, 
That's the time where the Spirit can remind us of the great cost that Jesus placed on us. But what Jesus actually paid for us, it wasn't simply 30 pieces of silver, right, the price of a slave. It was his very life, the life of a king. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. And Peter says that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up now. And what a wonderful theme to consider as we celebrate communion this morning. I think as I say every month, I can think of no better text, right, when we celebrate communion than a text like this about the price that Jesus paid for us and our response to that. Communion, of course, is a time that Jesus instituted, he gave to us when we would look back and remember his sacrifice on the cross, remember that redemption that it made possible for us, and a time when we also will look ahead to that time when he will fulfill each and every single promise that he has made to us. It's a wonderful time for us as Christians. It is a time for a Christian. If you're not a Christian, uh, you shouldn't really take communion because you're not celebrating what the Lord did for you. Now, if you would like to take communion and, and you're not a Christian, we can take care of that problem this morning, right? Pastor Jeff is over here and, and Helen is here. And if asking Jesus to come into your life and to forgive you of your sins and to start that intimate relationship with him, if that's your heart's desire this morning, we can help you do that. They can help to, to walk you through that process and to help you get started. You're not joining the church. We may never see you again. That's not the important part. The important part is that you're starting out in a relationship with Jesus. So communion here is open. If you're a believer and you're born again, the communion is for you. You don't have to be a member of our church to take it. So Fiora's going to just minister to us in song, and you can come forward and get the elements and take them back to your seats and just take some time to reflect on them individually. And when you're ready, you can take them um, just between you and the Lord. And uh, when we're finished, I'll come back up and we'll close in one last song and uh, dismiss us. Amen. So, Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for the precious promises that you, uh, that you give to us, Lord. We thank you for the examples, like Mary, that you provide for us of hearts that are truly set aside unto you and devoted to you. And, Father, we pray that you would give us those kind of hearts today. Lord, if there's anything that's been keeping us from that place and from this kind of devotion... Lord, I pray that as we come to your table this morning, it would be a time where we would ask you to, um, to cleanse us of those things. Lord, we want any barrier between you and us removed. So, Father, we thank you for this. And we thank you again just expectantly for the work that your spirit will do as we, uh, as we set this time aside to worship you this morning. And we thank you, Lord. And we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.